We now rejoin our show that we taped just a couple of days ago with the refeaturing of Charles Chenier, Tuskegee Airman and American Hero, celebrating Black History Month at Co-op Radio, 91.7 FM. This is bringing light into darkness. So, Mr. Chenier, you came to Tuskegee very, very close to its beginning. And when you came there, how big was your, you remember how big your cadet class was? Tuskegee situation was a, a controversial thing to begin with. The, the NWACP, that's National Association for the Advancement of Colored, Pe- Colored People, they asked the War Department to integrate the Air Force because lots of blacks could fly a plane, but they weren't admitted into the Air Force. Another Tuskegee University asked them to start Negro training in Tuskegee. They figured that they would just train them, and they'd shut up. The, it was a controversy then among Tuskegee, between Tuskegee and the NAACP because the NAACP said that Tuskegee was uh, going against them because by having all black outfits, it still wasn't integrating the Air Force. But Tuskegee won the argument, and they started training blacks at Tuskegee University. It was Tuskegee Institute at that time. Now, Later in the Tuskegee was the beginning of a process in which many people who did not go overseas directly went on, went on up to Selfridge Field in Michigan. And then there was a great deal of conflict. Uh, they were denied access to uh, office clubs, and they raised, they were very uh, opposed to that and, of course, uh, you know, agitated against that. And they were transferred to the, God, uh, the, what is it, the Godman Field in Kentucky, and then again, some problems came up b- based to these unfair types of treatments, and they were later transferred to the Freeman Field in Indiana. And it's interesting that eventually what occurred was the Tuskegee Airmen were actually transferred to uh, and saw their first real action, I believe, in, in the European theater. Is that correct? Yes. When they, you see the, the Tuskegee Airmen train and train and train, they were combat ready, but the Air Force was not ready for black pilots. And they claimed that blacks couldn't fight, they couldn't fly a plane and everything. And they kept going back and forth. And finally, Mrs. Roosevelt came down to Tuskegee. And Captain Anderson, who was in charge of training, uh, took her up in a plane. And she loved the way he flew. He flew the plane. And that's when she went back and told her husband, who was President Franklin Roosevelt, that the blacks were able, were able to fly a plane. And that's when they really got down to train them then. And they got them ready for war. They said they were getting ready for war, but they had no intention of putting them in the war. When they finally got, got admitted, I guess you call it, <laughs> to the white society, they shipped out to New York. And they went to Europe, to, to Africa, on a ship. It took three weeks to get there. Uh, they couldn't go out plane because no plane could cross the ocean without refueling, and they couldn't refuel in the air at that time. So uh, they went to, went to Europe, and they stayed there a long time because they were just stuck in, in Sicily, actually. And then finally they got to notice that they would have the blacks escort a couple of bombers on a mission. It was a bombing mission. They were strafing uh, railroads and 
oil fields and that kind of thing. Well, on that space mission, they were on that space mission, and the, and the Germans, did, they came. And the blacks left the formation to intercept these German planes. The German planes left, but that was a no-no because the first news in charge of the Tuskegee Airmen, then he was a white general, he said that the blacks couldn't follow orders, that their job was to escort the planes and not to intercept the planes. You see what I'm talking about? Absolutely. And and just to let our listeners know, you, you're talking about these were, at this point, they were flying, what, P-51 Mustang planes, is that correct? That's correct. And they were actually going up against Germans' best planes, which were the, the left wave, if I'm pronouncing that right, planes. And it's interesting that this is the change that was occurring is now they were actively in the theater and they were in combat and these things changed specifically as you said it's uh, i'm looking at the wikipedia site here it says things changed after the 99th moved to sicily and was attached to the 79th fighter group whose commander fully involved the squadron so that was a little bit later but it's interesting that it goes on to say that there was an impressive combat record, often entering combat against greater numbers of superior German aircraft and coming out victorious. Uh, so even though they were originally doing the bomber escort, that ultimately bombers themselves would request the escort by this group, not even knowing that they were black pilots, just because they did their job so well. Yeah, that, that, that came about later. Oh, okay. See, at first, uh, they were, the whites could peel off and intercept those German Messerschmitts. But they didn't want the blacks to do it. They just wanted the blacks to escort. Later on, they gave them permission to intercept. And that's when they intercepted. And they were, well, they did, did very well. They didn't lose a bomber. Uh, now, uh, 60 years later, they claim they lost three bombers. But three bombers out of about 1,500 missions, that's still something to brag about. Absolutely. And it says, although bomber groups would require would request Red Tail Escort, that was one of the nicknames for these pilots. They got so that uh, they didn't want the white escorts. They asked for the blacks. ...of his brilliant life. So the second track, track two of three, kind of details the nature of being a fighter pilot. You know, fighter pilots are the most, or were the most dangerous job in the skies during World War II based on the number that got shot down. And the degree of dangerousness is documented through the number of lost planes and captured pilots. At first, the Red Tails is what they were nicknamed, and you've probably heard that in various movies. They went up against superior airplanes. The German Air Force was on the verge of actually getting jet airplanes, and if the war had not been won when it was, the number of U.S. casualties and with regards to the air wars would have been much, much higher. But even in the absence of this event, the Red Tails went up against superior airplanes. Before the war was over, the Germans were introducing these German, they were called Messerschmitt 262s. It was the first operational jet fighter introduced by Nazi Germany. And we were not flying jets yet. And the tactical skills that Charles Chenier describes were developed on the fly. And it's just a fascinating read on how they would let the jets pass them due to their incredible speed 
and then drop behind them and try to shoot them down. But this is just part two of a sensational three tracks who we are dedicating this show, bringing light into darkness to, namely Charles Chenier, who passed away in 2018, one of the last of the great Tuskegee Airmen. Enjoy. It's interesting that by the end of the war, I guess the 332nd Fighter Group, they were an all-black group, and they it says here they'd been created from three new squadrons, but they went ahead, and by the end of the war, the 332nd had claimed some 113 of those left-wave German aircraft shot down, including three of those, those ME-262 jets. Let me ask you this. They say in all that there was 992 pilots were trained in Tuskegee, from 1940 to 1946, and about 445 were deployed overseas, and 150 airmen lost their lives in training or combat. Uh, what kind of gunnery did these planes have, and did you deal with the same pilots all the time, or how did that work? They, they were escorting the bombers. They were about 1,000 yards from the bombers. They surrounded the bombers with fighters, and the bomber was in the middle, but... The, the fighter planes were about a thousand yards on each side of the bomber because they didn't want the plane to get too close to the bomber. Even though you might destroy the plane, they still might be able to shoot the bomber. Now, uh, the, the black airmen made about a little over 15,000 missions. Uh, in that, they shot down 150 aircraft and they damaged at least 250 of them on the ground. And they, uh, another 150 were in the air, but they weren't sure whether they... They were damaged, but they weren't sure whether they crashed or not. They had, they lost 66 pilots, and they, the Germans captured about 33. And those, 30, those 33, they, were, they didn't die. They, they were released after the, after the war. These pilots that you said that died, they were taking off from, from, from the Sicily airfields, is that correct? From, from Sicily and from southern Italy. We'd, we'd, uh, we'd get the notice, we're going to escort certain such and such bombers, and we fly, and you get to a certain point. The bombers were stationed away from the fighter planes, but we'd get to a point where the bombers were in the air waiting for us, and then we'd get the formation, and then they'd take on, take off a bombing. This is particularly interesting to me because it appears, in my understanding, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the most dangerous air type of job that you could have would be to f fly a fighter and, and it's because you are protecting bombers you are protect you said two or three bombers got shot down out of thousands that went up but you have over 60 uh, in this relatively short period of time um, fighters getting killed and another 33 planes going down and, and surviving and becoming prisoners of war so the job of the fighter airplanes is to go ahead and make sure that these bombers can get to their destinations where they're supposed to drop the bombs to destroy artillery or other military uh, points of, uh, of need or, or, or such. And the, and the reason I mention this is because I remember when the big, there was a big controversy around uh, our president, George Bush, being in the National Guard. He was a fighter pilot. And uh, if I remember correctly, he, he was going to be, or, or the people that were with him and his group eventually became the fighter pilots that were protecting the, bom the bombers in the big Tet Offensive that occurred. 
Um, and that was one of the most casualty-ridden events. In other words, being a fighter pilot, even in the Vietnam era, many, many, many years later, it was still the same kind of situation, that it was just a very, very uh, dangerous, very dangerous job. See, it, it's, it's a very dangerous thing. And you see, at first, the blacks weren't allowed to fight back. They were just to protect the bombers. Uh, later on, they told the blacks that they could defend themselves and, you know, attack the, the, the German fighter plane. And that's where they got very, very, very interesting. Because at first, the Germans had better plans than we had. But uh, we outmaneuvered them, thank God. And uh, we shot down many more than we lost. But now, before the war was over with, the German Messerschmitt plane was a jet plane. And we went flying jets. So the jets could come down on us. They could fly higher and come down on us and with greater speed than what we had in these propeller planes. And... Uh, we had to find a way to beat that. And we did beat, uh, uh, send one plane to scout, and the, the jets would get behind them, and they would fly, and the American planes would be waiting. They let, they let the, the jets pass them, and then they attacked them from the rear. Wow. And like that, we shot down quite a few of them. So the jets were just so fast that sometimes they would just over-pursue, and you just kind of slow down and yeah. get out of the way, and then uh-huh. come, and that is fascinating. So... So the RP-57s, they were not jets. They were um, the first jets in that theater were German. Were German? Is that correct? That's right. They were German. It's a good thing. I still think we were lucky. The war was nearly over with when the Germans discovered the jets. Because if it started off with jets, we wouldn't have been able to outmaneuver those, those jets. Mm-hmm. They had caught on what we were doing, and we'd have been doomed. But uh, thank goodness the war was nearly over with. And then after it was over, we got jets too. But uh, we've got the jets too late. Well, that's very interesting. When you were going through the cadet school, were you learning to fly as well as learning other? I mean, there's a lot of jobs that that make up a squadron and in, in, serv- in servicing a squadron. You know, you need uh, there's folks that are trained to be aircraft and engine mechanics. Others are armament specialists. Others are radio repairmen, parachute riggers control tower operators, policemen, administrative clerks, and all of the other skills necessary to fully function as an Army Corps, uh, Army Air Corps flying squadron or ground support unit. Uh, what are the different jobs that you were involved with during your career in the military? Now, you must remember that I was 18 when I went in. And, mm-hmm. and the, 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 the first group, those five people who graduated from the first class of 13, they were about five to 10 years older than me. And I started out over armament. That's guns on a plane, and the aircraft guns on the ground, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's why I worked in before. Well, I worked in for a long time. And then when I got my pilot's license, not license, but when I was declared a pilot, uh, the war was, well, it was about half over with then. And I was just flying then. Uh-huh. The most of the damage had been done, though, although at the peak when I went in, in the flying. So as we turn to this last track with Charles Chenier, I just wanted to add as a kind of a, an aside, his nephew was Phil Chenier, the really accomplished uh, guard in the NBA for the Washington Bullets back in the time, before they indicated that that was an inappropriate name. <laughs> 
But anyhow, Phil Chenier matched up with Clyde Frazier, Walt Frazier, in the traditional and historic New York Knicks championship years and the Washington Bullets were their greatest rival and had incredible series. But anyhow, with that aside, this last track is on this kind of post-World War II reflections on the service years that Charles Chenier had and how, how bad it was for blacks. He talks about his experience in Sicily and shockingly talks about being treated more poorly than German prisoners when it came to being fed in that theater at that time, uh, better fed than our black pilots. The same treatment when returning to the United States as well, he claims. And on the Tuskegee campus, it was good, but not when they went into the city and routinely experienced the segregationist treatments. So even as they were transported across the ocean by ship to fight for our country, they received segregationist treatment. How many Tuskegee are left? At the time of doing the show back in 2007, I believe it was not much more than 100 out of 1,000 that had were in the theater or were around at that time. Anyhow, this is the third of three tracks. Enjoy, and we'll conclude with some comments following this seven-minute segment. Can you share with us you know, at, at a personal level, once you were done with your with the mil- military theater, did you continue to fly airplanes at all, or did you maintain your 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 flying skills? You mean after? Yes, after the war was over and after you came home. No, I never liked the service. I was drafted into it. I never liked the service. I didn't like the treatment. Blacks were receiving in service, so uh, I got out as soon as my number came up. I got out. You see, uh, to give you an idea how bad it was for the blacks, we were stationed in one place where we had some German prisoners. And the German prisoners of war was complaining about the food that they were getting. And we were talking about how good we were being fed. And come to find out they had misdistributed the food. They sent the good food by mistake, the good food they were giving the Germans to us. And they sent the Germans the food that was supposed to be for us. And this was in, in, in when you were in Sicily, or, or was this at, at another place? That's in Sicily. And when we got back to the States, uh, you know, when, when the war in Europe was over, we came back to the States, and uh, it was the same thing. We were back. We were in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, we, we, we had a certain street we could go to, and we couldn't go beyond that street. We left there, and we went to, I think, I think we went to Government Field next. That was in Kentucky. Well, they had off-limits for us there, too. So it was as bad in the United States as it was in the war, actually. It's interesting because that's what I was, uh, I wanted to just share that, how, how the discrimination was actually something that occurred throughout the tenure of the Tuskegee training and stuff. You mentioned the, the Godman field in Kentucky. Well, that, y- y'all got transferred up there, and then later, because you rightfully were absolutely not going to tolerate the secondhand treatment or whatever, uh, you were actually then moved to the Freeman Field in Indiana. And so these, these, these changes were going on, and when you think about Michigan and you think about Indiana and you think about Kentucky, these, these, the, the one thing that they seemed to all have in common was although you were defending our country, uh, you were not being granted the, the basic decent decencies of respect 
even on our airfields that you couldn't go into officers clubs and those types of things and there was a big old riot and such that went on that that occurred where some hundred i'm trying to find that this this please go ahead even in 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 in, in, in uh, Tuskegee, when we were on the field, it was good. Uh, we were on the campus, Tuskegee you know, in the Institute campus. We were treated swell. But when you went downtown, it was bad. Things were off limits. They put everything on the soldiers. And then uh, we had a, a white officer who was in charge. I can't think of his name now, but he was for... He was a segregationist, so anything that the city said, uh, he agreed with it. He tried to keep peace with the city. And then the only thing saved us, he got promoted, and when he got promoted, they moved him out to another outfit. Then we got a fellow who was decent. But I'll, I'll tell you, when, when they were going overseas first time, they had 3,000 troops on the ship, and 2,600 were white soldiers, and 400 were black soldiers were the Tuskegee Airmen. And B.O. Davis, who was the first commander of the squadron, he was in charge of the entire ship. And the 26 white, 2,600 white, kept to themselves on the ship. That even though B.O. Davis was over them, they just stayed to themselves. And the 400 blacks, well, they had to stay to themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's disgraceful. You know, that, that's just the history that most people don't, don't know about unless you are black, you know, and... and uh, then, if, of course, it, it's just burned in, into your experience and, and such. Well, let me, let me um, m mention a couple of things. One, I want to really thank you so much for your service to our country and also ask you, are you still in touch with other people from the Tuskegee Airmen? I mean, how many folks do we still have in this country that are veterans uh, from that same experience that, uh, that you had? We think there's between 100 and 125 left. Of the original. And the original group, again, was what, some almost a thousand. Is that correct? Is that what yeah. they, yeah, right, right. Well, let me, on, on, a, on, a, uh, on a separate note, and a little bit of a lighter note, although I really do want to uh, thank you so much for, for sharing this very, very important history. And hopefully, people listening to this show, it will encourage them to, uh, stu to, to study this, uh, to study this history. Um, I know that the a similar parallel type of thing occurred with the Buffalo Soldiers, which were actually created, started back in July of 1866, and they were formed by black volunteers composed of free, uh, freed slaves and Civil War vets, and, and in 1869 they helped establish Fort Sill, and, and they, um, they also, in 1885, defeated Geronimo's Apaches. Now, I don't know that much about about that history but i do know that geronimo was one of the greatest fighters in world history and 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 so i can imagine there wasn't a whole lot of anglo uh, soldiers ready to go up and 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 uh <laughs> and deal with geronimo but evidently the the buffalo soldiers have been accredited by you know cnn and others with defeating geronimo's apaches in 1885 and then in 1898 they accompanied teddy roosevelt up to san juan hill in uh, uh in in, in, in Cuba. Uh, they also assisted in the expedition against Pancho Villa in 1913. So it seems like the most intense types of engagements, uh, you want the best and the most fearless soldiers and, and certainly the 
experience in the history of the Buffalo Soldiers and certainly the ex, uh, the history that you shared about the Tuskegee Airmen some 30 years later in World War II exemplify the best of, of the fearless types of commitments that, that men and women must make when they, when they do go to war. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much for spending your time with me today, and, and really, um, thank you so much for your, your service to our country. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. My pleasure, too, friend. Take good Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Please stay tuned for our local music mix that comes up next. To our listening public, thank you for joining us once again. Please email any questions, comments, or interests to pgatos00 at gmail.com. We take you out as we do each week with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Yeah.